This morning's uh, scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. There's a really important principle in verse 15 in the passage that was just read. And it's the part of the verse that I'm going to focus on where it says, in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, this is really important, but it could go by us and not strike us as important. And one reason is this is the Bible, and this sounds like what you expect the Bible to say. So the Bible is filled with things like this, and so maybe it's just one more thing. But also the language of it, because it has the word Lord. That doesn't usually come up in contemporary conversations in New York honor as holy, which is one way of translating another word, sanctify, so sanctify, holy. Those are words that you'd expect in the Bible. And so if you're not a Christian, maybe you think the use of, a, of, of an encouragement like this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, as if you're evaluating, should I become a religious person? And if I decide the answer to that question is yes, well then do I want the specific religion to be Christianity? in which case this is what the Bible would tell me if I decide that. Uh, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Uh, and for those of you who are Christian, you may think, well, here I am with me in all of my life and all of the things I do and all of the concerns that I have, but how do I grow in my faith? And so this is important to grow in my faith. 
And so, again, it's one of those expectations we have. We don't always realize that, that some of these words, uh, certainly at the time of their writing, were more ordinary, uh, but the concepts are there, which is to say, this verse is not telling us to do something we're not already doing. It's telling us to focus in a particular way. So, so the word Lord, you know, in the Old Testament, the divine name Yahweh, we capitalize uh, Lord, L-O-R-D. Uh, but any place where it's just a capital L and uh, the rest of it's not capitalized in the Bible, it's a title. No, it's a title we don't use. We use CEA and uh, CEO and president, those kinds of titles. But if you think of modern-day Britain at Parliament, uh, there's a House of Lords. If you're a Downton Abbey fan, there's a Lord Grantham. Uh, the title Lord has been used throughout history as it was in the first century to describe the supreme, Caesar. But saying honor Christ the Lord is not, it is a religious statement, but it's, it's a statement that also is used in non-religious ways. It's a title of honor and supremacy. And the word holy, again, that's a, that's a word that, that no doubt has its place as we think of spiritual things, uh, but a simple definition of holy, this is not all of the fullness of it, but a simple definition is, is something set apart. And, and maybe the connotations you have with holy are, are right, because when something's set apart as magnificent, special, glorious, valuable, uh, all of that is part of being set apart. But, you know, it used to be, the, I don't know that many people in, in New York still have this as, as they conduct their family lineage, but it used to be that if, if your great-grandmother had special plates and cups and saucers that were passed down, you know, they were special. They were heirlooms, and therefore, if you had them, you wouldn't eat your ordinary meals off of them. Why? Do they not work? <laughs> well, you can. you can. You can say, you know, hey, could you cut me a piece of that pie and put it on that uh, on, on great-grandma Marge's saucer there and stick it in the microwave, and you can do that. It will function that way. You may find yourself thinking, well, they didn't really do microwave safe in the 1800s. Uh, is anything going to happen to the plate? But just the frequent use of it, it could get banged around, it could be broken. So on the one hand, you wouldn't do that because if they're valuable, you wouldn't want to risk damaging them unnecessarily. But another function of having a separate set of dishes, the ordinary everyday and the separate set is on a special occasion. You know, now it's somebody's birthday. And we want to mark this as a, as a different kind of meal. So it's not simply that we cook a meal, but, but in the way that we serve it. Um, all of a sudden, it takes on a different purpose. Th- those, those dishes are, are set apart for, for something different. So, so we, in our world, we set things apart. We value them. We treat them specially. We create unique things that signal um, we, we have honor. And so there's a sense in which uh, we're already doing this. But the problem is, uh, the insight of this passage is, we are going to do this. But if we're not doing it with Christ in the center then all sorts of things are going to go wrong. And so he's saying, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You could put other things in there as a warning. In in your hearts, don't honor your spouse as holy in the same way. Don't honor your job as holy in the same way. And so, uh, like I say, we're already doing this. Um, What is it that each of us sets apart as valuable? What is it we love? What is it that excites us? What is it we want to be part of so that we will devote time and energy to it. And uh, the, the Christian sometimes has trouble because we have uh, Jesus in, in the special religious category of Lord and holy. 
But, but the things that we've set apart to say, but this is what I really want in life, and this is what's really going to satisfy me, is something else. And, and what happens is over time is we find that, that we become resentful of God, that our lives aren't working, or we think that God is not giving us what we need, or there's something confusing. Uh, we find ourselves being shaped in certain ways, and Jesus doesn't fit how we're being formed, and we think that the problem is with him. And so getting this clear to say, you know, as we reflect on our lives, there are things that, that we love. And that's fine when everything is ordered and in its right place. The problem is when things that we experience in the world, whether it's ideas, whether it's things that are made or people, take that place, often without our even knowing it, we wind up uh, devoting ourselves, serving, making decisions, making sacrifices for things that aren't going to repay us. And we wind up ignoring what actually is important. There are so many examples of this. In a place like New York, for many, it's career. Not for everyone, um, but for many, it's career. Because when you think about what are the things you want in life, well, you may want a certain measure of security, or you may want um, to devote your time and energy to things that are productive and valuable. You, you may want to be appreciated. Uh, you may want uh, to, to have not just the bare financial minimums, but a certain measure of financial comfort. There's not a problem with any of those things, and there's not a problem with working. The problem is when we set our hearts on, on our work as the means of getting the things we want. We want security, we want comfort, we want acceptance, we want to be useful, all of these things. And when we find my career will help me to do that, then Jesus is there as somebody that maybe gives you some commands or some guidance. But the thing that's really shaping what you're striving for, what sacrifices you will make, who you will hang out with, where you will live, um, what decisions you make, what you'll wear, if your career is driving you in that way, then you'll find fundamentally uh, that's what's in the center of your heart, your very being. It could be a person. Romantic relationships are good. Uh, if you meet somebody that you really delight in and love, that's wonderful. But, but when that person becomes the sole motivator, the effector of your heart, um, then there's something uh, unusual there when you're devoting all of your time and energies, when, when you can't live completely without that person. And so that's where, where this is important, that it actually is not just about how to become a more spiritual or religious person, but about how God is going to bring transformation to the whole of our lives. And so we're in this series in First Peter talking about spiritual vitality because it opens up talking about this living hope uh, that, that makes us alive and then that spiritual work is, is working its way out in everything. It's not making you better in one sphere, the church sphere, the religious sphere, the spiritual fear, sphere, it's, it's taking uh, the whole of your life and energizing it for the whole of your life. And so this idea of honoring Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts is really important to make progress beyond just, okay, now I've become a Christian. And so what I want to talk about today are, are three things that are true of people that touch on this reality, that we are to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is human beings, all of us to some degree, are desperate for good. That's the first thing, we're desperate for good. And what I mean by that is 
is yes, all of us are flawed, our world is flawed, and part of religious life and spirituality and following Jesus is recognizing the problematic things that we want to do that we shouldn't. So no doubt that's part, uh, the ethical life is, is for everybody in the world who realizes I just, I wanna do things I know that are wrong. But, but those things are often a corruption of something good. And, and what you find in Christianity is not simply that the goal is to restrain all of the evil things you want to do, uh, but to really put you clearly on the path to pursue what's truly good. Because we all want what's good, but we're lost and wandering, and we're pursuing it in ways that are disappointing and frustrating, and that corrupt our experience of good, or even as we try to do good, we wind up inadvertently doing damage along the way because of our uh, egotistical pursuits and concepts of good. And so, uh, in verse 13, it asks a, a rhetorical question, who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And it's that zeal that we're supposed to have. You are to be zealous for what is good. If, the, if God has made you alive, if, if he has shown you himself in his way, uh, and if he's training you in that, there should be an energy to pursue goodness. You should want more of what's good in your life. You should desire to be good. You should be desired to do good. There should be a zeal. And this question is, well, if you want to do that, who would harm you? And, and reasonably, the, the answer to that is, nobody should. See, we don't need to be cynical about all people, everyone's out to get you, or at all periods of time, you're always going to be miserable. The idea is, no, we should expect if we are zealous for good, it would be unusual that people would oppose that. But this is not a pep talk, this is not a fantasy. It goes on to acknowledge that, that there shouldn't be anyone who would want to harm you. But there will be. And the funny thing is those people sometimes think they're doing good. Uh, they, they, they think they're being moral and just in how they're opposing you. This is part of life in this world. We're confused about what's good. And so your zeal and their zeal may come into conflict. We're to be zealous for what's truly good. Jesus is going to show us that way. And that way should bring such goodness that everyone around us benefits from it. But we live in a world where people get envious, people get jealous, people get confused. Sometimes we're trying to do good while somebody else is trying to do something bad, and we're going to expose them. You know, when you, bring, when you start a community center in a neighborhood where there's a gang, the gang may resent you, not because they're against the community center, but now you're bringing attention of the police in the neighborhood. And so they're trying to do something problematic, you're trying to do something good, and now they resent you because what you're doing is in conflict with what they're doing. And so the passage here encourages us to be zealous for what's good, but it acknowledges that there are words here that remind us this isn't automatic, it's not easy, it's not all the time. And so in verse 14, have no fear of them or be troubled. Fear is an indicator that there's a threat, there's an alert, there's danger, troubled. The experience that despite what you want, even a, a genuinely deep yearning for good, a commitment to doing it, that you may find yourself troubled in doing it. So there are, nobody should oppose you, but anybody can, and some people will, and yet you should remain zealous, you should remain fervent to do good. And, and so the word fear, the word troubled, the word harm, uh, another word in verse 16 is shame, that that's part of life in this world. And that's why we're called to a different way, to be zealous for what's good so that you would have a good conscience. So that's verse 16. If you have a clear conscience, you're not calling good what you're doing. Um, you're not justifying your own misdeeds or rationalizing anything, but you're really zealous for what's good. 
In the short term, that may not play out well. You may be opposed. You may be discouraged. It may involve sacrifices you don't want to make. But as you remain fervent over time, you'll find that even if people oppose you, if you both stay the course, there's this confidence we have to have, which is it may not be quick and it may not be easy, but over time, good as it comes from God will win out. And so resisting it, opposing it will lead to shame. That's the the consequence of the short-term gains of doing what's wrong. The long-term result is shame, humiliation. We're called to a different end, a different way. We're called towards goodness, and it's good along the way. And so we all have these longings. In verse 14, it says, if you do this, you will be blessed. In verse 9, the passage from last week. So today we're focusing on 13 to 18. Last week we looked at the previous verses, but verse 9 says, you were called to bless that you may obtain a blessing. You have desires for what's good. And we're told not to, to be so in tune with our flaws, to say, don't bother trying, you'll never be good enough. Just try not to sin and keep admitting your guilt. The passage is, God is gracious. He will, he will bring you forgiveness, and he will show you what's truly good, and he will bring out of you, as you grow and learn from him, what will really satisfy you. You're looking for good things, but you're looking in the wrong places, and so it's good that you want people to accept you, and it's good that you work hard. Um, but if the only way that you believe that you'll be accepted is by achieving at work, then there's a danger. And and, and I'm going to highlight two sides of that kind of danger in whatever form it is. Um, Whatever good you're pursuing uh, by making something, some created thing, some idea, some person, some ideal, some culture, some institution, supreme. Uh, One thing is the vulnerability to manipulation. And this happens in careers. And so if you are eager to get ahead and you're afraid that you won't, the people that, the gatekeepers that have the power um, are able to get you to do things that you ordinarily wouldn't want. And so I'm seeing some people in New York, professionals, often their career is their main thing. Many in New York, the career is not the main thing because they have other goals. So maybe you want to be, um, <clears throat> you know, a pop star uh, or, or um, a famous YouTuber or, or something where, where you're not likely to earn a lot of money because it's highly competitive unless you get successful, in which, in which case you earn a lot of money. So then what you do for work, your identity is not tied to. So, so you have a job that's paying your bills and you have the thing you're pursuing and at your job, they keep correcting you and saying, you're really not good enough, you're not competent, and then you get fired. If you get fired, sure, you'll be annoyed. Maybe you'll be, be uh, fearful, but as, as long as you're pursuing the pop star thing, getting fired from, from the job that you had is not gonna crush you. Whereas if the record producer tells you, you're no good, that will crush you. What happens when your career and your identity overlap? Then if you're not thriving at your work, it's not as simple that you could go home and say, hey, I tried and I need to grow and this didn't work out. But, but when at work you're not excelling and if at work you get fired because you didn't make the downsizing, then it's not simply that you have a practical problem, financially, what's next, but you may have a worship problem. Uh, all of your hopes, all of the things, your security was there, your, your being accepted was there. Now how are your What are your parents going to say to their friends about you? And can you admit to them that you're not thriving in your work? Uh, See, all of these good things we want, if it gets placed on work, we're prone to manipulation. Same thing with romantic relationships. If you meet somebody that, that you're interested in, wonderful, pursue it. But if that whole person is your life, then you're prone to being manipulated. And then the other side of it, the second danger, is you yourself could become harmful. You know, it's good to be driven in your work to be hardworking, to be excellent. Uh, 
But when, when work is ultimate, when work is supreme, you're going to be a very hard person to work with and a very hard person to work for. Because you're not simply bringing people along because you're competent, but you're, you're bringing people in on your own dreams and pursuits, and therefore you could wind up really manipulating others. Uh, or, you know, despite the flattery of wanting to be, have somebody so enamored with us that they give up everything because they're in love with us, uh, that will feel good for a period, but, but no human being can sustain the demands of that kind of devotion. It's not simply that they love you, that they want to spend time with you, and that they'll never leave you, but, but when you are set apart in their hearts as supreme, uh, you will never live up to it, and that person is going to try to make you be something you're not. And so this is something we all do. We want good things, and, and the problem is not that we want good things. The problem is the desperation for them. This world is dissatisfying. And so what will we we'll, we'll, we'll look to uh, for the good things for our security, for our acceptance, for our being able to do valuable things and grow with skills. For all of these things, what will you look to in some ultimate way? We're told here, well, set apart Christ the Lord in your hearts as holy. If you understand from the Bible's perspective what that means and you get that right, you don't stop working or pursuing relationships or trying to be good at things. You stop devoting yourselves to things in this world as objects of worship, and it frees you so that you can do your best at work and excel, and if you get fired, you can be genuinely disappointed, sad, nervous, but you won't be crushed as if now you have nothing to live for. And see, that's the issue when we find ourselves saying, there's something, my health is going, I have nothing to live for. This person left me, I have nothing to live for. I lost my job, I have nothing to live for. At that point, we find that you've been living in some ultimate way for the wrong thing. You have been on a dangerous path. And the corrective of the Bible is there is something to live for in some ultimate way. And when you get that clear, then you can be a devoted partner, uh, employee, um, whatever your ability is. And so we are desperate for what's good. You want good things, and you should pursue them. But we're being invited to focus on where and how we pursue them. So here's a second thing about people that touches on this important teaching. It's that we are watching for something different. Something that's true of us is we're going through the world trying to make sense of things and we're watching for something different. And what I mean by that is we want what's good. And so we always have our eyes out for what will be satisfying, what will be good. But as you grow older, you face enough disappointment that cynicism comes in, that you start to learn you just can't trust anyone who's trying to manipulate you because when you're desperate, that's what will happen. And so we're watching for what is good. Um, but in the disappointment, we find that this world sometimes uh, disappoints. So for instance, um, when athletes are found out being involved in doping or some, uh, some, some drug use, not recreational, um, but performance-based, you know, why is that an issue? there are some people that may not ever be able to, to train to be an Olympian or a professional athlete. But it's not just a hobby. It's not just staying in shape. But people really give themselves. And so you'll look at somebody who is the Tour de France winner, the ice skating championship. Uh, you see them and you say, how could I learn from them? And that person will often write articles, be in videos, be interviewed, and they will share Here's what I do, here's what I eat, here's my routines, here's where I practice, these are the support systems I have. 
And all of these things are good, and then you find yourself doing them, and you think, well, of course, if I did them another five hours a week that I can't afford to do, I could excel. But there must be something else that just makes me not as superior as this person. And yes, there are genetics, and yes, there is professional coaching, but what comes out is there's that secret unnamed thing. So here you are killing yourself, wondering why you can't keep up with this person's routine when they're human and you're human, you're the same height, you're the same weight. Why is it you're dying? <laughs> oh, they have an advantage of something that they haven't disclosed. And, and that seems to happen everywhere we go, that whoever it seems is a picture to us of some greatness to, to emulate, to follow. There's always something that comes out to say, oh, you too, <laughs> the disappointment the lack of integrity. And one of the things that can happen is we wind up not growing in discernment. How do I make sure that I don't get tricked? But we grow in cynicism to think everyone's a fraud. And either I'm going to play the game or I'm just going to live with the great discouragement of thinking everything is a hoax. Is there anything real? Well, the call of the Christian is not to play the religious game. The call of the Christian is to be so zealous for good because that's who you really are and who you're becoming that it comes out authentically. So in verse 15, it says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There is something that's meant to be in us that should come out in a way that, that makes people wonder, what is that? There's something different. And it's not that we've learned the teachings and we're doing them. It's not that we've studied the doctrine and we speak more accurately. It's that there's a working of the spirit that you've connected with God who is truly good. And now you're becoming zealous in a way that's truly good. And then you will face this world, and in First Peter in particular, the challenges of this world, so that there's something different about you. And what's different is not what's in you. It's not you who is different. It's what is in you. It's that hope. It's the presence of the spirit so that what people are looking for, God alone who stands up to our scrutiny, when God is at work in our lives and we're faithful and, and we're, we're zealous for more of him and to walk in his ways when we're honoring and revering God, then people who spend time with us should notice something different, not that we're weird in ways that sometimes we are when we feel that we have to do the religious show. I need to put on a, a certain way of being so people will think that I'm whatever or, or that they won't be willing to join me. Something authentic here, the reality of God's work. There's a hope that's in you so that at some point, and especially in facing difficulties, it should come out so that people wonder, what is it about you? And it's a revelation not of you, but a revelation of God's work in you that will stand up to the scrutiny. And so in the Bible, for example, three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this one minor event, but when Jesus is crucified and dies, there's a Roman centurion who just, in what seems like a throwaway comment, says, truly, this was the Son of God. And I don't know exactly why he said that or what it means, but here's a guy that's seeing lots of people crucified. What did he see? It's an interesting thing to think about this week. What did he see when Jesus was cru crucified in him, in the people around him, what did he see that there was something in Jesus' humiliation and shame that left him with the impression, truly this person was the son of God? In the worst of moments, this centurion encountered somebody so zealous for good that it came out there that he was struck by it. 
And so we're not called to be defensive people. It's our pride and our ego. It's when you want everyone to think you're great. It could be at work, it could be in relationships, but it could be in a religious way. You want people to think you're moral. Maybe, maybe the, the work of religion is I find a community to be accepted in, I have rules that make me better than others, and now I could be comforted. You will be defensive, but in a way that doesn't show the gentleness and respect of verse 15. We're not to be defensive as if we need to vindicate ourselves or our tribe. We're to be prepared to offer an apologia, the Greek word, like Plato recorded uh, Socrates, his teacher, trying to give a defense for his own charge. Uh, there's something uh, about us that, that there's an apology in, in the ancient Greek sense, not saying you're sorry, but, but a defense, an answer. You should live in such a way that at some point somebody wonders, what is it that makes you keep going? When others revile you, why are you not reviling them? <laughs> and now when I argue with you, because I'm, that's how I'm going to test you, not coming as a sincere inquirer, but I'm going to come and try to humiliate you and see if you can answer my questions. And you have good answers, but you don't have all the answers, but you're responding to me with gentleness and respect. You're defending, you're articulating, you're standing for the faith, but not in the way that everybody else defends their gods, their work, their reputation, their comfort, the kinds of things that draw out the worst in us, that, that makes it impossible for us to be gentle and respectful when people challenge us because they're getting into that secret place of the thing that we worship that's failing you. Peter is saying is if Christ the Lord is holy in your hearts, you will fail and all of the natural ways of behaving when you're failing will come out. But if that hope is in you, people will see something different. And whether or not they ask sincerely or whether or not they mean it to ridicule, be prepared to speak about the hope. And so you don't need to prepare, you know, five different paragraphs of what you'll uh, memorize and say as if you need the exact answer in that moment. Because we may fumble for our words and we may say, I need to think about that and come back to you. But we should hope that if they see something that really strikes them, we should stop and say, this is not me. The Lord is doing something in me or in this person. And so let me now change the topic to answer for the hope that is in me. And it's that that's going to keep us changing and growing and will make us effective uh, in the world. Uh, I had um, read this week uh, something from Mark Dever, who's a pastor in, in Washington, D.C., uh, as he was reflecting on an, an article that he read in The Atlantic about Wynton Marsalis. This article was some years ago. So Wynton Marsalis is a, a, a very uh, reputable uh, appreciated, gifted trumpet player. And in the article about him, um, the, the writer, the Atlantic uh, writer, so I'm not talking about Mark Dever, who I read, but the, uh, the Atlantic writer, went to the Village Vanguard to see somebody who was a, a, a great jazz player, but maybe not necessarily the top name and didn't necessarily know who was going to be in his band. And the trumpet player had his back to the audience wasn't Miles Davis at that point, I think Miles Davis was, had already died, had his back to the audience, face down, and he found himself from where he was sitting, not knowing who it was, but thinking, I think that's Wynton Marsalis, but he didn't know. Uh, and then there's a, uh, he, he does a, 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 a solo, not um, being a ballad by himself, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, he plays that song by himself, unaccompanied. And there's something just powerful 
about it. He just, this guy plays well. And it comes to this resolving moment at the end of the song when everyone's quiet because this has been so beautifully played and somebody's cell phone starts going off. And as a writer who's recording this, he said he took out in his notes, magic ruined. (laughs) There was something wonderful and this person with this weird ringtone uh, whose phone went off, they, they fumbled for it, and then they got up and they went out. And then there was the awkward laughter and the sort of the rustling that people were distracted. He said, all of a sudden, he hears the trumpet player playing the ringtone. So he's playing the melody of the ringtone. And then he's, he's sitting there working with it, this very quick ringtone uh, for what was his very slow ballad. And he takes the song, and he improvises in the melody, and then he slows it down, and he lands back in the key he was playing, And after a few minutes, he ends as he was meant to end. And at that point, uh, he said that the the audience went crazy. They had had witnessed something. Um, And and what, what struck me was Mark Dever's comment on it. He says, what is it that reveals who this trumpeter is? Not his ability to play the piece. It's his ability to resurrect it from near disaster. There are lots of talented musicians in New York who could learn the song and they could get the tone right and they could be sharp. It's not that that's not incredible when it happens. But the mastery that that this unrecognized trumpet player, he didn't know who he was, demonstrated was when when things went wrong, uh, he was able to enter into that and, and redeem it and bring it back and bring it back to where he wanted and and that Uh, That is what helps you see that trumpet player is not just another side guy. And it's that reality that we're called to as Christians to say there should be something about us that when we go into the world, nobody should want to harm us if we do good. So do it. Your life will be so much better if you just keep doing the honest, honorable, generous, sacrificial, all of those things. Keep doing it. Your life will go well. But the reality is, without understanding why, sometimes it won't go well. Sometimes people will oppose you. Sometimes whatever you hope will happen won't happen. But when you're doing it, not because you need to prove that you belong in this earth or that people should respect you or that they should not reject you or whatever it is that we're hoping for, when you do it, because you've become free of those things, because now you've seen who the authentic one is, uh, then you're able in those moments, not simply to, to be zealous for good, but to be one who, in those terrible moments, is able to bring life back into them, not because you are skilled and trained and smart enough, but as you go in faith, the one that we're all looking for, the one we're watching for is God, and we don't see him because we're looking for God in romance and in entertainment and in work and in money, and we're growing more cynical. Where is it that I'm going to be satisfied? Where am I gonna get what's good? What we're told is, well, God sends Jesus. Uh, the one who the goodness of God has seen, yes, in the wisdom of his teaching, yes, in his kindness and compassion, yes, in the power of his healing. But it's when we most opposed him that you find that makes him uniquely, authentically what we are looking for. We're watching for it. What the Bible says is, there it is. Focus there and then reorganize your life and it will be different. So here's the last thing. I want to talk about, it's we need help navigating the present. So we're desperate for what's good. We're watching for something different. 
but we need help navigating the present. You know, you don't just learn the rules of Christianity and go do them, but you, you walk with God who is living and active, who is in us and who sits enthroned above. And when you go out into the, that world with that hope, spiritually alive, then you're prepared to give honor to God in the great moments, but also to hope in God in the hard moments. But we need help navigating that. And so, so Jesus goes before us and makes it possible. And so that's the last verse. In verse 18, we're going to pick up on next week and then go into the next section. But it says, Christ also suffered once for sins. So he's calling us, even if people oppose you, don't revile them, be faithful. Because Christ also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And that's the thing. It's not that Jesus gives us a map so that we can find our way to God, but Jesus comes to bring us to God. So Catherine Lacuna says, if one finds, one finds God because one is already found by God, anything we would find on our own would not be God. That's the warning, is if what you want most is to have success and people to like you and you think work is the place to get it, whatever your religious life is like will be a construction of your own sort of misunderstood perceptions of God. We will make a God in our own image. What we're told is Jesus comes as the image of the invisible God. And so now we can see, and in that encounter, we can be changed. And so we have put something in the place of God in our lives. That's the point of this. The gospel is that God has put something in your place. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's that awareness that we have a lot to learn. We need God's grace. We need God's forgiveness. We are not good enough. But Jesus is so good that he will go in our place so that we can follow him and he will bring us to God. That's what verse 18 says. Jesus came to suffer in order to bring us to God. And so that helps us to navigate the present. There's this dynamic following of Jesus where we're alive in the spirit and sometimes you see the great things God does and you rejoice in them. But sometimes we face these confusing situations. What am I supposed to do? Why is this happening? I don't understand. I want good. This is not good. What we're called is to be so zealous for good and faithful to walk in the spirit and to believe that if Jesus is Lord in your heart, you can move forward and that the end will not be shame but will be blessing. Um, as we do that, Verse 17 says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. What's God's will, that you suffer? No. God's will is that you follow Jesus and that you're zealous for what's good. But if suffering is part of that story, it's not that God's will is that you suffer. God's will is that you follow and that you do good. And by that, I now don't mean to get into the, uh, to the deep theological questions about whether or not God is in charge. That Email me if you want to have the conversation about that. I realized by saying that's not God's will, that was a theological landmine. What I'm saying is the ultimate goal, follow Jesus, um, pursue what's good, believe God is sovereign, and then in that moment, how do you navigate faithfully? And you won't always know. It won't always be clear. Um, we always need to think about what is my hope and how do my decisions factor into that. Um, it's when it doesn't make sense. When, when things are hard, that we maybe need to be more intentional. And, you know, as we navigate that, 
there's a need to pray, a need to watch, a need to be hopeful, a need to act with good. But it's a confusing period, and, and a lot of people these days are talking about what's being termed deconstruction, which may be the right term for it, except I suspect nobody talking about it is reading Jacques Derrida. But I think they're talking about deconversion, something a little bit more simple, but let's give people the credit. There are some sophisticated people out there. But there are these, these stories of what's being called deconstruction that, that really are these deconversion stories. And what's interesting is, look, everyone is unique. But a lot of the stories fall into a, a similar pattern, which is that fundamentally, they follow the narrative of, of Christian conversion just in, reser- in reverse. And that's why I say it's more of a, a deconversion story. And, and so, so I myself, I didn't grow up in, in, a, in an area where Christianity was the dominant culture. So I don't know uh, what that's like. Some of you did. Uh, and I think particular for people did where there was a certain kind of story that you were supposed to have that, that at some point you were supposed to make a commitment that transformed you from a form of way of life into the new way of life and then you get acceptance. So I don't know what a youth group is like at a big Baptist church in Dallas you know, as an example of, of the kind of place where there's a sense in which this is where the cool people are, the good-looking people are, and I want to be part of that. And if I tell a Christian story in a certain way, I will be received and welcomed. And, and the deconversion stories have a similar dynamic that now there's a certain people, but they're more sophisticated, and now you realize they're the cooler people. And if I tell a story about how I, I became aware of my own foolishness, and now I finally understand, I'll be welcomed by a community. The, the stories are somewhat similar. Uh, and therefore, I would discourage pursuing a deconversion story. But deconstruction, that's a little bit more subtle. Uh, that's saying, you know, at some point, I've learned, but I've learned some problematic things. There's some things I'm misunderstanding. There's some things that I, I'm doing wrong. And do I need to fix that? Do I need to unravel that? Do I need to take two steps back before making the next step forward? You know, like a weaver. When a weaver is weaving something together, you know, as soon as you find a mistake, sometimes you need to go back and, and realize you wasted two hours of work. Sometimes you can look at it and fix it in another way. In our Christian lives, there are times that we see things and we say, something's wrong here. I, I wound up, I misunderstood, I got in under the wrong teaching, there's some problem here. The way the stories are being told today, the idea of deconstruction is just tear it all down. You know, be so cynical that, that with joy and pride, just tear it down, toss it aside, and move on. Uh, but that's actually doing the same thing of just following what other people want and believing things quickly and instantly. Do we believe that Jesus really is authentic, that he alone holds up to scrutiny? Then in the Christian process you find, boy, I got in with the church that taught me things that now I'm realizing it's, it, that's not in the Bible. And, and so what do I do? Do I need to not go back to not being a Christian and rebuild my life from scratch? But do I, do I, do I need in study to to go back a few, a few years to that focal point and rebuild? Or is there something problematic, but I could just fix it in some way for now, but I'm going to have to deal with it over time? That's the normal Christian life. There's nothing new there. This church is a Protestant church. We got to the point where we said, actually, it got so bad that there's no quick fix, but we really need to reform the church. Uh, that happens. It happens in the church. It happens in individuals. It will happen to you. It will happen to us as a church, our denomination, uh, Christianity in the 21st century. There are things we're going to see where we realize we misunderstood, we strayed. We need to be humble enough to be prepared to fix it and and to to deconstruct. (laughs) But the nature of the deconstruction is moving forward with Christ, not 
not getting rid of everything good so that you can try something different. Um, or that you could uh, give up what one people are claiming about Jesus for what another people are claiming about Jesus or the spiritual. But there's that sense in which um, revering Christ in your heart, he gave us the scriptures. He's given us a community so that there's thousands of years of people throughout time and throughout the globe who are writing. And so you could submit your ideas and, and look for those who are giving an answer for the hope. And don't make a quick decision because one particular crowd makes some radical claim that, that excites you and appeals to your cynicism. It appeals for, for, to your desire to be more sophisticated. That's where the manipulation happens. That's where religious people harm others. But when we say, you know what, if Christ the Lord is holy, we could trust him, then, then we're one community under him. And we're seeking to revere him in our hearts. And we're zealous for what's good. And, and in an effort to honor him, we will study the scriptures and we will encourage one another. And we'll work out the details of these hard questions. And when life gets hard, we'll be willing to admit if we're wrong. But we're also going to recognize that, that that hope should not be given up on. And, and that's the ordinary Christian life. It, it always has been. So you can call it deconstruction. And if, if it's what we've been doing for years, do it. If it's some new thing that you can get a podcast by talking about how excited you are not to be a Christian anymore, you've already been doing that. That's what everyone's doing. Uh, that's not what we're looking to do. We're, we're looking for the truth. And we believe the truth is found in God, and, and God has sent Jesus to bring us to him, and therefore, we don't let go of that. We don't throw that away. But we seek to keep realigning, and he will show us. And so the Christian life is dynamic. You don't have the answers to what you will face this week, but if you have the spirit, God will bring you through. Hold on to that hope. And so I want to encourage you, um, as you, as you go through this next season of life, God may do wonderful things. Every good thing give thanks for. But if there are challenges in your heart, keep Christ the Lord as holy and, and seek to honor him, seek to follow him, to live by the Spirit. And over time, what the passage says is you will be blessed. There may be some reviling along the way. That's okay. But in the end, if you are zealous for what's good, the true work of God will stand in you and in our world. We don't need to be afraid that we're going to be on the wrong side as Christianity comes out of vogue. The church as we conceive of it may, but Jesus Christ, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, will not. And so if we serve him, we're on firm ground. So let's keep pursuing that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come as people who are skeptical. We come as people who are maybe a bit frustrated with you or with life because we are eagerly pursuing things that we really believe are good, but we're a bit confused. Lord, in this gathering, bring us back. Help us to, to see what's truly good, what's uniquely promising, what's really hopeful. That Jesus, who gave himself in our place, uh, has demonstrated that he is trustworthy. And that is he who promised to bring us to the Father Lord, that we can continue to follow. And so, Lord, may, may we in this room be spiritually alive. May we who are gathered today here um, have that work of grace so that there is a true hope that makes us really zealous for what's good in a way that's firm and right and honorable and satisfying and a faithful witness to you in the world. So we pray for that. Help us with all of our weakness, with all of our failings. And I do pray for any who's coming today with confusion. What is it? What is it we need to let go of? What do, what do we need to, um, 
to repent of? What do we need to relearn or unlearn? Lord, may we do that in a way that puts us on firmer footing and keep us from being overwhelmed by cynicism or by the latest fads, but help us to, uh, to stand on that hope that will not fail. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.